Hello again. We're going to study the uh, second passage in the book of Revelation uh, today. And uh, that passage is from verse 4 to verse 8. I'm going to read those verses. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I'm reading again from the New King James Version. There are some variations uh, in other versions, but nothing of any great significance. Now, last time in the first study in Revelation, in, look, we looked at verses 1 to 3. And they form, in one sense, a synopsis of the whole book, insofar as they tell us about two things that run as themes throughout the book. The first is that the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It is centered upon Jesus Christ. And it is given to us for the glorification of Jesus Christ. But then there is a second principle, if you like, theme that runs through the whole book. And that is that the revelation is the work of the whole triune God, the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So having uh, uh, achieved a, a synopsis, uh, given us an introduction, John is now ready in verse 4 of chapter 1 to write to the churches, to greet them. And he greets them in these terms. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Now, uh, we want to clarify one or two things at this point. Uh, the word Asia refers here to a rather small Roman province of that name. And sometimes today we call it Asia Minor and has nothing to do at all with the continent of Asia, 
as we know it today. The Asia of the Book of Revelation uh, corresponded to roughly the western half of what we call Turkey today. And all these seven churches uh, could be encompassed in a, a circle of a 40 mile radius, so they were all quite close together. Now, the reason that is significant is that prior to his exile to the Isle of Patmos by the Roman authorities, who obviously found he was causing trouble for them in, uh, in, in Asia, uh, prior to his, his exile, he, the Apostle John, who writes this book, lived in Ephesus, which is one of those seven churches. And so in writing to the seven churches, he's not writing to unknown churches. These are churches with which he will have had uh, some great familiarity. And I think that must be borne in mind, as he does. He knows what he's talking about, in other words. And the word grace was used and is, in fact, even the words grace and peace were in fact common greetings in the first century. Uh, the word peace was the common Hebrew greeting, shalom, and the word peace was an adaptation of the common Greek greeting. And uh, that adaptation was, uh, I think, first used by the Apostle Paul. But although this greeting could at first sight be taken as a simple common greeting in Greek and Hebrew, uh, it nevertheless is far more than that. It is, in fact, a benediction. And the reason for that, of course, is that the grace and peace that John is talking about doesn't come from him. It's not a, a wish on his part uh, only. It is grace and peace from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, it is a greeting from the Trinity of God, which is underlining the point we picked up last time. Uh, but you will notice, uh, first of all, that God the Father is not called God the Father. In true apocalyptic style, uh, both God the Father and the Holy Spirit are represented by symbolic names. God the Father is called the one who is and was and is to come. And God the Holy Spirit is described as the seven spirits that are before his throne. And now, this is, this is straightforward apocalyptic uh, terminology, and it has significance, but you have to look beyond the symbolic expressions to find the reality. It is clearly, it's clearly a reference to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And then 
Thirdly, he says the greeting is from Jesus Christ, who is named uh, directly. There's no symbolic title here. Furthermore, you may be a little concerned or surprised that the normal order in which the persons of the Trinity are, are mentioned, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, is changed here in that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are mentioned before God the Son, before Jesus Christ. Now there is a very simple reason for that. Uh, John has nothing additional at this point to say about the Father or the Spirit. But he has a great deal to say about God the Son. He's going to elaborate on the nature, the purpose, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And in order to give himself space to do that, uh, he has left Christ till last. And so let us come to that statement about Jesus Christ. Uh, there are three things said about Christ which describe his person. First of all, he is the faithful witness. Secondly, he is the firstborn from the dead. And thirdly, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. But that is followed by three statements about the work of Christ. And those three statements are first of all, that he loved us. Secondly, that he washed us from our sins in his own blood. And thirdly, that he has made us, that is those who believe in him, kings and priests to God. <clears throat> and what I want to do in the most of the remaining time we have this morning <clears throat> is to look at those three descriptions of the person of Christ and the three descriptions of the work of Christ and see how they are connected. That God the, that God, uh, the faithful, that Christ the faithful witness is the one who reveals that God is love. Uh, secondly, that uh, he is the firstborn from the dead, uh, connects with the fact that he has cleansed us from our sins, washed us from our sins in his own blood. And the statement that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth uh, connects with the statement concerning his work that he makes his people, his children, his followers, kings and priests. So let's look at these three 
pairs of uh, statements that, he's made, uh, that are made about Christ. The first one is that he is the faithful witness. Now, the nature of a witness in general is that the witness possesses some knowledge that other people don't have. Uh, he possesses some special knowledge and possibly even some unique knowledge. Uh, and secondly, that uh, the witness, uh, he or she, uh, is willing to impart that witness, that information that he has, uh, knowledge and information, uh, to other people. You go into a court of law, uh, you'll find that that is what is happening. For, for several decades, I acted in uh, the British High Court uh, uh, at various times as an expert witness in something like a dozen different uh, long-running cases. And so I've heard uh, very, very many witnesses give their evidence in court, and I have done that myself, of course. And usually, at the end of the day, the outcome of the case turned on the testimony of the witnesses rather than the argument of the of the um, uh, QCs, the the advocates. It's it's the testimony of those who actually know something about the matter under dispute. They have some special knowledge of it, and they are prepared to reveal that knowledge to the court. Uh, now, of course, uh, in some cases, I, I have uh, run across uh, the witness was not a faithful witness. I've heard people get into the witness box and tell lies. But the Lord Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. He is the one whose testimony can be absolutely trusted. And he proved that by his life, as well as by his teaching. But what is the special knowledge, then, that Jesus Christ has? Well, he has an infinite store of knowledge, of course, as a member of the triune God. Uh, he has uh, a store of knowledge that uh, goes beyond our imagination. But I think that in this context, the particular knowledge that he imparts to us is knowledge of the Father, of God the Father. You see, in uh, John's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 18, we read this, no man has seen God, meaning the Father, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him or revealed him. And Paul tells Timothy that God the Father dwells in unapproachable light and is one whom no man 
has seen or can see. And it is one of the greatest works of Christ that he reveals the Father, God the Father, who cannot be seen by mortal eyes. He reveals the Father to us, reveals the nature of the Father, reveals the intentions of the Father, reveals the works of the Father. Another interesting reference is in uh, John's Gospel again, chapter 14 and uh, verse 9. Uh, Philip has been asking questions and he says, uh, Lord, show us the Father and we shall be satisfied. And Jesus replies, have I been with you for so long, Philip, and have you not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Why then do you say, show us the Father? So it is the work of Christ to reveal God. And it is because he has special knowledge of God the Father, uh, intimate knowledge of God the Father, uh, so that he can say, I and the Father are one. It is because of that that he is able to reveal to us, both in his teaching and in his life, the Father and what the Father is like. And that links, of course, with the uh, first statement here about the work of Christ. He loved us. And of course, we can say that is still true today. He still loves us. And in that work, he has revealed to us that God is love, that God the Father is love, as John states uh, in his first epistle. Now, God is a holy God. God punishes sin. God judges wickedness. And in the last day, he will, through Jesus Christ, judge the entire human race. Every individual who has ever existed will stand uh, before that great white throne. So God is, in one sense, a severe God. But ultimately, at depth and in his heart, God is a God of love. And that is the first thing that Jesus Christ reveals to us. That is what, uh, above everything else, makes him the faithful witness. Now, the second Thing that he said about Christ's person is that he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, clearly, in order to be born from the dead, reference, of course, to the resurrection of Christ, uh, he had to die. And in order to die, he had to become a man. So the incarnation is linked here with the work of Christ in redeeming sinners through his death upon the cross. 
And of course he did that by taking upon himself the guilt and punishment for the sin of those for whom he died. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, God made him, the Father made him, Christ, to be sin. The one who knew no sin, the one who was sinless, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the fact that Christ is the firstborn from the dead, and as Paul puts it in Romans 4.25, uh, being uh, delivered for our offences, delivered to death for our offences, and raised again for our justification, uh, in that Christ has died for us and risen from the dead, become the firstborn from the dead, because others were followed, all who believe in Christ, will be raised eventually to eternal life. And those who do not believe in Christ will be raised eventually to judgment. Uh, but because of that, we can link together this uh, statement about the person of Christ, he is the firstborn from the dead, with his work that he has washed us and cleansed us from our sins by his own blood. He died upon the cross in order to do that. Then the third statement that is made about the person of Christ is that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. That is to say, he is the ruler of the rulers. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He is sovereign over even the highest and strongest and most powerful sovereign among men. Christ is above them all. And that has tremendous implications, of course. The sovereignty of God is one of the great doctrines of the Bible, that God is in control. But that is reflected in, in a, a very lovely way, fascinating way, by the work uh, that is described uh, uh, a verse later, which says, that he has made us kings and priests to his God, to the Father. And uh, the wonderful thing there is that the ruler of the kings of the earth is able to and does make his children, even the least of them, a king and a priest. You see, a, a king has authority. And the amazing thing that's being stated here is that every believer has the authority to approach God, not in fear, but with love and with boldness even, says the book of Hebrews, uh, let us come boldly before the throne of grace uh, to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. We have the authority to enter the very presence of the Almighty. Now, you might go uh, to Buckingham Palace in London and knock on the door, as it were, <clears throat> if ever you got as far as the door, 
and say, uh, please, I want to see the Queen. And you would be dispatched with uh, uh, high speed. We do not have the authority to walk in on the Queen. That same goes for the President of the USA and the President of any other nation to which you may uh, belong. We do not have that authority, that authority of access to the one who rules. But the, the Christian, the, the believing Christian, has that access. He has that authority. She has that authority to come directly at any time we wish into the very presence of Almighty God to come with our positions and to come boldly, to come seeking the mercy that we need so often and the grace that we need all the time. That's a wonderful thing. We have been made kings. We have been given that authority. And we could elaborate that picture. We have been crowned with the mercies of God, uh, which are new every morning. We have been crowned with his, his benediction and with his promises. But also, you see, we've been made priests, not just kings, but priests. And the priest's work is to enter the presence of the deity with petitions, with requests for other people. We have this power not only of access, but the power of intercession in which we can bring the needs of others before a holy God. Now, those are very wonderful things. And uh, there's no little wonder that he goes on in these verses to say to him, uh, the one he's been talking about, Jesus Christ, uh, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins um, in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and the Father, to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Christ is worthy of glory and worthy of our acknowledging his dominion, not giving it to him, but acknowledging that he has it. Now, there are another couple of verses that I, uh, in this passage. I just mentioned them. Uh, in verse 7, we are told that Christ is going to return coming back to this earth and he is coming back to this earth to judge it in righteousness and to call and reveal uh, the church uh, in his glory. Uh, <clears throat> in other words, he will glorify the church and he will take the church to himself as his bride. It's a picture, of course, but there will be a great uh, a union between every believer who has ever lived and Christ in that day. There will be uh, what Revelation describes as the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Well, that's something we look forward to. And then the last thing that is said in verse 8 is from God the Father. God the Father uh, tunes in, as it were, uh, to this song of praise. 
and he reminds us that he is the one who is and was and is to come. That is the way he is described earlier in the passage and it occurs again here with the added statement that he is Alpha, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And that picture is used to illustrate that God is all in all. There is nothing in heaven or earth, there is nothing in time or eternity that is outside of his jurisdiction and power. He is a sovereign God indeed. And we are reminded here, after the uh, eulogy that has been uh, presented to us about Christ, reminds us that behind Christ is the authority of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, we'll leave it there and continue uh, in our next session with the following verses. Thank you.